This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in the United States. Let's talk about where we are with the markets, Alex. Uh, it has been a bumpy ride this week, but actually equities have had a fairly good run of things, particularly where you are. NASDAQ up by nearly nearly 6%. European equities up a little less. The FTSE 100 up around 4 tenths of 1%, but the CAC and the DAX doing better. The CAC around in Paris up by around 1.7%. Euro dollar has been the story. In fact, currencies more broadly have been the, the story. Euro dollar barely uh, above parity, down by two and a quarter percent this week, taking a real battering. So while equity markets have done well, the European currencies really haven't. I have to say, I was really surprised that we didn't break below parity on the jobs number. So I have to wonder, like, does that mean that an aggressive Fed rate hike cycle is actually truly priced in anything but the bond market at this point? Because equities did a whole lot of nothing, too. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, well, they're up. They're up a little bit today. They're up a, a little bit. The Nasdaq's mm. up by around three, four tenths of one percent. But yeah, no, I appreciate it. it was a really strong number. But I think the market's trying to figure out exactly what this means for the Fed. I think the idea that we're nailing on 75 basis points does seem to be there right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that appears to be kind of increasingly becoming consensus. But yeah, I was a little surprised as well. But but this has been a week that, that we've also had to factor in so many difficult challenges. You've got what has happened with British politics this week. Uh, you've got the whole gas story, electricity mm-hmm. story developing in Europe. And on Monday, you get the shutting down of Nord Stream 1. These are really complicated things for the market to try and figure out at the moment. And then, of course, we need to factor in as well the shooting of of Shinzo Abe, which was a real shocker first thing this morning. Uh, And while it appears not to have any policy implications, I think the market's just trying to kind of work out whether it does. And I think this Sunday's elections will will, will give us a meaningful guide as to that. Yeah, and even if it doesn't have uh, market implications, it was still a huge event. Um, and I think that the legacy of economics and sort of where then the country goes on an economic level, how does monetary and fiscal policy now interact in the future, are things that we just don't know yet and we may not know uh, for a while. Just to recap some of that news. Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, he was Japan's longest-serving premier. Um, At 67, he was shot about three meters or 10 feet away in what appeared to be a homemade firearm in the western city uh, in Japan. He was giving a campaign speech at an outdoor venue for his ruling Liberal Democratic Party, and this is, as Guy referenced, ahead of Sunday's upper house election. Um, The current Japanese Prime Minister uh, spoke on the election campaign after Abe's death. We must protect elections as the foundation of democracy. I am determined to continue this election campaign to show that our democracy will never give in to these kinds of violent acts. That was the current Prime Minister uh, of Japan. Joining us now in the studio in New York is Jody Schneider. She currently heads up uh, the D.C. Bureau for us and and Spearheads TV as well as Radio for Balance of Power. But for many, many years, she also lived uh, in Tokyo. Um, Jody... What, what is your reaction to what happened? Tell me about his legacy and sort of what you're hearing on the, on, on the ground from those that you still interact with. 
Yeah, I, as everyone was shocked, I woke up this morning to my WhatsApp kind of blown up with uh, a lot of messages, including some in Japanese from friends there. Um, it's shocking not only because he was such a well-known figure, but also uh, in a country like Japan with so little gun violence. It's not, you know, sadly in the U.S. we've become kind of used to this. In Japan, this just doesn't happen. So uh, it was shocking. And in terms of his legacy, I think many of us in the U.S., obviously someone like myself who had lived in Japan was particularly, um, you know, this was particularly shocking news. But I think he was well known because he really did uh, look to cement those ties with the U.S. Not only was he the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history, he really raised Japan's profile uh, on the in, in global affairs and on the international stage, particularly with the U.S. Clearly, Abenomics, his um, his real economic program that led to higher stock prices and a weaker yen and really sought to undo decades of deflation in Japan was probably uh, what he was best known for. And as part of that, womenomics, trying to get more women in the labor force uh, to lead to and, and to really try to uh, deal with, cope with some of the real yeah. demographic issues that Japan was facing. Jody, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think if you asked a lot of people uh, in the West to name a Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe would be the first name that would be on their lips. So a huge shock in terms of uh, him being killed, assassinated uh, earlier this morning. Th th this comes though on the on the on the eve of some fairly important elections, upper house elections. They take place Sunday. They are going to take place. Do you think Do you think one will have an impact on the other? I don't know that it will impact it that much, frankly. Uh, it's more, you know, he has been out of office. He hasn't been prime minister for the past few years. Uh, I don't know that that will, you know, impact this. But I do think uh, his legacy and and whomever does continue to lead the country will, um, you know, will be impacted by him. And one would hope that his efforts in, in terms of trying to have Japan be a leader in terms of the regional uh, efforts with things like trade and also uh, how they had, how he really did try to come to some kind of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you want to call it comedy, but, but certainly uh, some kind of relationship with China that allowed them to move forward on mm -hmm. a firmer economic footing. You would, you would hope that that would be the kind of thing that would be taken into account in in terms of uh, future leadership uh, dealing with his legacy. Um, Jody, in the future, though, I mean, the current prime minister made no bones about the fact that there is going to be a shift from that redistribution of wealth so centered to Abenomics to more of a pro-growth strategy. And I wonder if at some point that's going to come in the monetary front of revisiting that yield curve control, considering the weakness that we've seen in the yen. Yeah, I think that's certainly uh, likely the case. And, you know, in terms of Abenomics, even though uh, it was the goal to, uh, you know, restore growth and get inflation higher, it was only partly met. Uh, you know, they had dramatic uh, efforts by the Bank of Japan and and, and government spending. And really, uh, Japan's economy, you know, is, is still far from those goals. And even his goal of, of women being in the workforce, they did get those labor force participation numbers up. But often those were in part-time jobs that did not uh, provide a lot of salary or, or benefits to, to women. So I think, um, you know, we really have to look at that economic legacy kind of uh, very clear-eyed. And he only really partly met those goals. And it is a different era in Japan as well. 
How did Shinzo Abe change the relationship between Japan and the United States, Japan and Europe? Yeah, well, one of the things he was, he was really kind of unapologetic um, about uh, Japan's uh, history and legacy. He was not one of these, as previous prime ministers were, apologizing for what happened during the war. He sort of said, we're moving past that. Um, he was controversial in that he did, um, you know, was looking to some of the, some people called him uh, too nationalistic, and that he obviously, um, you know, in terms of the military, sought there to be more military presence in Japan than there had been. But he really did work on that relationship with uh, the U.S. and U.S. presidents. We've heard now today, we heard from not only President Biden, but uh, President Obama and former President, um, former President Obama and former President Trump, who had relationships with him. He was the first uh, international leader to come to the U.S. after uh, Trump won, for instance, and played golf with him. So he viewed those relationships. He took them very personally. He wanted Wanted there to be alliances between the U.S. Uh, and and Japan, and also in the region. He he took that uh, relationship very seriously. He worked very hard for the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which yep. uh, President uh, uh, Trump had ended when he came into office. But that was a real goal, an alliance uh, builder. He really was. Jody. Thank you for your insight. We really appreciate it on such a shocking day, uh, the assassination of Shinzo Abe. Up next, we're going to talk about British politics. Rishi Sunak throwing his hat into the ring to be the next prime minister here. That story next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. It has been a week of political turbulence. I think that is uh, something of an understatement, British understatement uh, here in London. Boris Johnson finally being forced out of office, but not out of number 10 Downing Street. Uh, We now have a process to replace him as British Prime Minister. Uh, Who is ultimately going to throw their hat into the ring uh, is the big question that everybody's now grappling with. Uh, Around uh, around an hour ago, uh, we found out that Rishi Sunak, uh, Alex, uh, the former Chancellor, uh, has decided that he would like to have a go at the top job. Shocked. Uh, Shocked, I tell you. Yeah. Uh, Though in his resignation (laughs) letter, he did talk about the idea that this could potentially be his last ministerial role. But Prime Minister, Mm -hmm. maybe not. Um, Priti Patel apparently also considering uh, the job, the Home Secretary. But it's some of the outsiders that people are keeping an eye on. Uh, Wallace Tugendhat potentially uh, could be there as well. We also understand, uh, Alex, that the, the, the Johnsons, Boris Johnson and his wife Carrie, have decided not to hold their their much delayed wedding party at Chequers. Chequers uh, being the um, the out of London home of the British Prime Minister. Uh, I think they'd already sent out invitations. They were anticipating a very substantial party uh, that could take place at Chequers this summer. Apparently, those plans have been changed after there were suggestions that maybe Boris Johnson was determined to cling to uh, his home at Number Ten Downing Street in order to facilitate that party taking place. <laughs> so uh, that seems to have been put to bed for now, at least. But uh, we're starting to get an idea of who wants the job. I just want to know who's more tired, you or Joe Mays? I think that that, on my end, is the real question. Uh, no comment. Joe, are you there? <laughs> He's been covering this all, all, all week as well. Joe May is joining us uh, from Bloomberg. 
Uh, he's not here yet. Oh, he's so, not here yet. No, so I I can't answer your question as to or not to, to whether or not he is more tired. But I suspect that he probably is. Um, it has been it. it's been a brutal three is it four days now of of British politics. It's been basically running all week. Uh, I can see him ambling gently. I have to say towards oh, the know, studio in in a very relaxed fashion. But he'll be here in a moment. What we're going to do therefore is I think what we should do is we'll blow the next break. Yep, and, and that will give us bit. an opportunity. Uh, to talk to Joe. He, he, in a moment, will walk into the studio to give us an update because basically I'm just trying to figure this out from what Joe is, uh, Joe is saying. Uh, he, well, he, as he, gets, he, he oh, walks he into the studio. He could sit down at camera four, uh, at mic four. There you go. Uh, he joins us now. This is, this is how the sausage is made. Um, Joe, I'll let you put your headphones on. It has been a brutal week for you. We're starting to get an idea now of who is looking to replace Boris Johnson. We've heard that the Rishi Sunak has thrown his hat into the ring. I understand Priti Patel is potentially on the verge of doing so. Just give us an idea of, of who has confirmed and who we expect. So we've had confirmations, as you say, Rishi Sunak just now. We've had Tom Tugendats come out. We've had the Brexiteers, sort of Braverman. We've had many candidates coming out, more so than we were actually expecting. We think Ben Wallace might come out as well, Defence Secretary, sometime soon. Uh, Liz Truss, we're looking out for her. The, the field is looking exceptionally wide. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's going to happen is the, the 1922 committee, which sets the rules for this contest, they can try and narrow that field by setting requirements such as you need to have a certain number of proposals to get onto the ballot paper. So that's the next thing to watch out for. Question. Does, um, first of all, great coverage this week. I, I, know, I know it's been quite a lot, but can we effectively say that Boris isn't going to make it those next three months that the, that the t- committee is going to really try and like move this along to get the process rolling harder and faster? Um, they might try, but I was speaking to someone on the committee yesterday and they were saying the timeline is pretty clear in that it would be get down to the final two by July 21st, which is when re- Parliament recesses, and then have, say, six weeks to do the hustings in the country so that it's finished by the start of September. They think you do need some time to organise hustings around the UK, which, which, which does take time, uh, and that's why they think that September timeline is most likely. Some suggestion that they may change the rules and just do this within the parliamentary party. They might do that, but I think there is still a desire to have the kind of uh, legitimacy of having been selected by the whole Conservative Party. I think they, they would like to keep yeah, Which the is convention. huge, obviously. Uh, 160,000 people, right. uh, less than 0.01% of the UK population. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's British democracy. Um, there you go. <laughs> oh, please. Don't battle democracy with someone who lives in the US. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so based on that... Um, what kind of mandate do you think that anyone will have coming into this horse race? Well, in terms of contenders, many of them are stressing their you know, cabinet-level experience if they have it. I mean, just look at the video Rishi Sunak put out announcing his bid. He's saying he was running the most difficult government department during the pandemic. So we're going to see this. Each contender you know, stressing the kind of leadership credentials that they, they bring into it. I think the other question will be, when the leader is selected, do they feel like they need to call a general election? Because often historically, remember the time of Gordon Brown, he was under great pressure to call a general election when he took over from Tony Blair because they were saying, you know... You... I've seen some pretty grim polling for the Conservative Party. Why would they do that? Exactly. You wouldn't want mm. to but you might face great public pressure to but uh, Tom Tugendhat, one of the candidates was asked about it yesterday and he was saying oh no no you know the conservative party won the last uh, election and i'm of the conservative party as all my mps so that's fine but boris johnson was making a very personal mandate argument in in justifying him staying he was saying look the country voted for me um 
so yeah, I think we'll see Conservatives stress the Conservative Party angle uh, in the coming yeah, weeks. It's a parliamentary system. Um, go. Me? Yes. Yeah. Policies. <laughs> um, what, what, if any, policies do you think are going to be reversed or on the chopping block? Or what, what are we expecting no matter who gets uh, the, the, the premiership? Well, I think the biggest focus in the campaign is going to be on tax. And there's going to be a, a real battle to prove yourself to be the most consistent with conservative ideology and being low tax, because we know that that's a very yeah. popular opinion. And if you're going so to do win, they reverse. So are they going to reverse like the the windfall tax and stuff on oil companies then? Well, that that that's one possibility. And Tom Tugendhat, one of the candidates, has come out is saying he would cut fuel duty even further. He would also yeah. do things like roll back the what's called the health and social care levy, which is a tax, uh, an increase in national insurance uh, to pay uh, a payroll tax to to pay for COVID era spending. So we might see you know candidates debating about that. But there's going to be a real fight to prove yourself to be the most ideologically pure on tax yeah. in the coming weeks. Okay, the OBR says that's a bad idea. Indeed. And that's why you have someone like Richie Sunak who's just come out to say, yeah. I'll be the responsible candidate. So you will see a kind of responsible versus, you know, go for growth, low tax uh, debate. And it's down to someone like Sunak to try and convince his colleagues that he's right about it. And it's better to be fiscally responsible. But uh, when I'm in, in Westminster, most Tory MPs say, you know, why, why are taxes at their highest since World War II? You know, yeah. This isn't good enough. And, and, and crucially, those Tory MPs believe you get economic growth from yeah. cutting taxes. And that's a question the Conservative Party like hasn't settled amongst themselves, like whether that's mm-hmm. true or not. And Richard Sunak argues at the moment there's no such thing as a self-funding tax cut. Um, that, that's just, it's, just, it's, it's, it's the crucial debate, I think, on tax in, right. this, in this contest. Can I ask a cynical question? No matter what they say, do we believe them? In that I feel like with Boris Johnson, his policies would be one thing and then a week later it would be something else. And then all the ministers had to go out there and say one thing and then all they had to go and support something else. Do we really think that in the middle of all these other crises that what the prime minister is going to say is going to go? Well, I think any concrete pledges that a candidate makes in this contest, they would be expected to stick by. You know, they wouldn't want to kind of go into becoming prime minister and then betray their MPs by going back on on a serious pledge. They will, nevertheless, though, I think, shape their narrative and offer to the electorate at hand. So... At the moment, it's the Conservative MPs. That's the first round of voting. You've got to convince them to back you. And then it goes to the grassroots Conservatives who, compared to the British population at large, you'd say are much more likely to support Brexit, for example, and are much more likely to want low tax and be quite socially conservative. So don't, you don't be surprised if candidates say things to, yeah, to, to appeal to that, uh, that, that perspective. Are any of these candidates going to fight this on a more pragmatic approach to the EU? So that's a really interesting question. And if they do so, it's a dangerous approach yeah. because being seen to be soft on Brexit is 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 not a good look in the Conservative Party. Even doesn't. though the economics dictate that there is a meaningful negative impact becoming increasingly clear. Yes. And, I mean... Just look recently at the example of Tobias Elwood, the Conservative yep, MP, who wrote, yeah. He, yeah, he wrote an op-ed about how the UK should have a discussion about whether they should rejoin the EU Single Market and Customs Union for the economic reasons. And the backlash he got was you know, significant, because even if there are economic benefits of doing so, there's still this core sense that it would be a democratic betrayal to do so. It, it, it's, uh, we've got to the stage you where... Just being nicer, rather than just being like, adversarial... 
being more cooperative. That that is that that even that is perceived still as being something that is anathema to the Conservative Party. I think in 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 a world where you're competing against say six other people for a job and your position and your purity on Brexit does matter a lot if you take even a moderate stance you're very easily outflanked at that point yeah. aren't you i think someone like tom tugendat will say we show a pragmatic approach but it won't enamor him i don't think to to it's certainly not the grassroots conservatives maybe some of the mps joe you've had a long week we should let you go thank you very much indeed thank you guys. bloomberg's joe mays really really appreciate it um alex the powder's been pummeled this week but actually i don't think the the politics has actually had much to do with it uh it's economic effects it, it's the halo effect as well coming off what has been going on with the euro yeah, and like we both said, we said it was very strange that we didn't uh, break below parity on that jobs number. And you and Kriti had the great honor of speaking with Jean-Claude Trichet, uh, formerly uh, head of the Central Bank for Europe. And you started by asking him, you know, what do you think of parity? Like, could that actually happen? Well, I, I am not too surprised, obviously, because the, the U.S. started increasing rates quite uh, earlier and also with energy and pre-announcing other energetic, if I may, increases of rate. And as you know, the increase of rates in Europe is uh, only to be expected uh, this month and the next uh, increase of rates next uh, in September. So we will see exactly uh, what happens. But, but I'm not surprised, frankly speaking, that the exchange markets are taking into account this difference uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. The, the difference can be explained. There are good reasons for that. But of course, it has an impact. But when the... European Central Bank will continue to increase rates and uh, perhaps uh, the US Fed will consider that they have done part of the job, then we will see some kind of rebalancing. That's my uh, understanding. And of course, it would be good for the European to have the euro up uh, in comparison with the present level because, because they are presently importing inflation, which is not good, of course. Jean-Claude, I'd like to ask you about the anti-fragmentation tool that we are eagerly awaiting, I believe, to debut July 21st. We still don't quite know what that looks like. I'm curious, what would you do if you had to create that tool? What would it look like? Well, first of all, it seems to me that in Europe, there is a a question, an issue that does not exist, of course, in the U.S., which is how do you deal with, one, the necessity to take care of the euro area as a whole and to maintain price stability in line with the definition of price stability, which is uh, anchoring interest rate expectations medium term around 2% on the one hand. And second, when you increase rates, the increase of spreads between the various signatures in Europe. So I think that the ECB was right to say we will increase rates on the one hand and we will see exactly how to deal with the threat of segmentation, fragmentation. But all taken into account, I trust yep. that uh, the ECB has weaponry that they can utilize. And of course, you have also a lot of mechanisms that were decided upon in the past and are very, very effective, in my opinion. JCT, Jean-Claude Trichet, joining us from Aix-en-Provence, uh, the economic conference that takes place almost every year there isn't a pandemic in the way, uh, down in the south of France. Very nice affair. Uh, And he looked quite relaxed, I thought. Um, In terms of the challenges, Alex, that that Europe faces and the ECB faces, though, huge and completely different to the the story over with the Fed. We don't know yet whether the Russians are going to provide enough energy this winter. 
Mm-hmm. We don't know what the economic trajectory is, therefore, as a result. The UCB has multiple challenges, but I think energy at the heart of it. Yeah, I thought you actually put it really well, where you're like, how do you possibly know where the euro is going and what monetary policy is going to do? And you literally don't know what the gas situation is going to be uh, from Russia. Also, in terms of the fragmentation tool, too, um, lots of question marks on there as well. It doesn't really feel like everyone has the support for that, necessarily. We saw the Bundesbank nope. head talking about how um, it's virtually impossible to determine quite the right level of spread. So now more question marks about how much weight they're going to throw behind that. And then if we do see gas cut off altogether, or even if we see just a trickle, what are they supposed to do? Like, literally, the ECB has no control over that. And the higher than spreads go, the less it can actually hike. It just feels like they're in the middle of this vicious circle. I don't really know how you get out of it unless, best case scenario, and Russia opens the taps, I guess? Uh, That is definitely the best case scenario, Um, but looking increasingly unlikely. And, and Trichet was making the point, and he, he famously talks about this in his press conferences, the ECB has a single needle in its compass, and that is inflation. Mm-hmm. That's the mandate. doesn't have a dual mandate. Has a has an inflation mandate. And inflation will go, will rocket higher and to in be that fair, kind of scenario. And to be fair, here in the US, we have a dual mandate, but in reality, currently, it feels like it's only one mandate also. I know, uh, yeah, but at least there's the flexibility to switch from one to the other. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, a firm focus not that long ago on what was happening with growth. The ECB doesn't have that optionality. And in theory, if inflation goes to the moon, which it could do in that kind of scenario, they would have to react. And in theory, they would have to hike into that weakness. Well, and I guess my question, though, is I'm reading too much into one day. I appreciate that. But the weaker euro, I'm not seeing below parity. Have we finally baked in all that bad news, though? Maybe, maybe. But if the, ECB, if the Fed's going 75, I don't know. Maybe it's just a one-day thing. Maybe I, we've been trickling lower. Maybe we continue to do so. Of course, yeah. It didn't happen today. Could happen on Monday. Who knows? We'll wait, we'll watch, and we will continue to update you. Uh, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson uh, is over in London. So well, it's interesting in the stock market here. So we started off pretty strong uh, in the equity market. We've seen S&P up about five straight days in a row, but we've kind of given up some of the strength uh, just over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. We're now in negative territory. Um, you could make an argument that perhaps the rise we've seen uh, in yields in the bond market just got a little bit too strong uh, for the likes of the equity market. You're looking at a two-year, uh, well over 3% now, up by about 10 basis points, 3.11 on the two-year. Uh, the 10-year up by uh, 10 basis points as well, but uh, that curve inverting yet for a third day. You have to wonder how far can it invert and is it actually giving off any signal now? Um, in terms of what we can take away from that. Um, And the backdrop to all of this is the jobs number that came in quite good and much stronger than uh, estimated. You can try and poke holes in it, look at the labor force participation rate, that's going down, but it all points to a job market that is still quite hot, which puts even more pressure uh, on the Fed to hike rates. Um, Labor Secretary uh, Marty Walsh was on Bloomberg earlier today, and here's what he had to say about the job situation. So we're seeing uh, our job economy moving forward. Uh, the, the wage growth, we're seeing the, the biggest, well, some of the biggest gain in the lowest income earners, which is good. Obviously, we're still dealing with inflation, and, and the, the wage growth isn't quite keeping up with inflation. But I think what we want to do is actually bring inflation down. Uh, so we have to continue to move forward. 
continue to move forward from Marty Walsh, the Labor Secretary. Uh, here to help us understand what that actually means is Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics Policy Correspondent. He joins us uh, in the New York studio. Hey, Mike, it feels like the takeaway was that, nope, not in recession yet. Yep, the Fed can still keep hiking. Is anything wrong in that statement? <laughs> no. Uh, that's pretty much the way everybody's reading it at 20th and C Street in Washington at the Federal Reserve. Um, best tweet I saw today was, I survived the Great Recession of the first week of July of 2022. <laughs> well, that's actually really good. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, markets tend to get ahead of themselves, and I think in this case they probably did. That's not to say we couldn't have a recession next year, but we're not in one now. So why has the market put us in the place that it looks like we are getting one now? So I, I'm trying to understand. The data have been pretty strong recently. Mixed. Okay, let's say they'd be mixed. What has given the market enough confidence to start to price a recession? What's given the commentators enough confidence to start talking as strongly as they had about the fact that we are either approaching or, or are already in a recession? Where, where did that come from? I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, but, but the data started to come in pretty yeah, but bad. Yeah, not, but not that bad. Well, the data started to come in weaker, which is what you would expect if the Fed yeah. is raising interest rates and trying to slow the economy. I think uh, what a lot of people did was look at slowing data and leap to the idea that, well, the Fed is just going to keep going, raising interest rates, and they'll push us into recession. And there's history behind that, but there's also, uh, you know, the, the world is not the same as it was in the 1970s and 80s. So uh, we don't know yet. This is also a recession like one we've never seen before. So it yeah. is really hard to know what's going to happen. But what's been odd is there's been no that nothing between an overheating economy that is pushing up inflation to Volcker levels and absolute recession. Nothing yeah. in that middle ground as far as the market well, was concerned. But I feel like if we look at inflation expectations, that encapsulates both of those things. One, you have market-based inflation expectations are coming down, but then consumer inflation expectations are still super high. And I feel like therein lies the problem, right? Because you look at the markets and inflation expectation, we shouldn't be in a recession. You look at the consumer, and then that looks more dicey. Well, the consumer is looking at something that um, the Fed isn't in the sense that the Fed is looking at what it, the sort of underlying inflation rate is. Are we seeing a broad-based increase in prices uh, that will continue? And the consumer is looking at the gas pump and saying, we've got uh, extremely high gasoline prices, therefore uh, we have a lot of inflation. But what's been interesting is the consumer's don't think it's going to last either. Their longer-term inflation mm. expectations are that it will be flatter or or fall. One of the things that pushed the Fed to do 75 was that Michigan number where the longer-term expectations went up to 3.3% and then got revised away after the Fed meeting. CPI next week. If that number comes in on the upside, I again, how does it how does that change the narrative? What do you think is price going into that number Wednesday? Well, I said this earlier uh, today, Guy. I think if you have a holiday scheduled for next Wednesday, go ahead and take it. Uh, the Don't say that, because with my luck, I'll I, come down with another weird sickness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, 
I'm quite happy to plan a holiday next Wednesday. <laughs> Alex so no is not weird al- sicknesses, please. Alex is not allowed to breathe between now and <laughs> next Wednesday. No, we but, tried to get her not to talk earlier. It lasted yeah. about 35 seconds. <laughs> it's if, actually he's entirely accurate. If we get a, a high number, it's just going to ratify the Fed doing 75. Uh, it isn't right. going to push them to do any more. If we get a lower number, everybody will say, well, that's good news, but it's only one month and we mm-hmm. still see a lot of strength in the economy. Um, we had an economist on earlier uh, on Bloomberg who was saying that they're, they're more interested in the retail sales number, and I can see why. Uh, retail sales is Friday. Um, we'll see if there's a real pullback in spending. We know that consumer confidence fell, but does that mean consumers are going to stop spending, or are they just shifting you know, from goods to services, or just downshifting a little bit in how much they're spending? Um, Mike, in terms of where we'd see the most action and sort of what markets are telling us, if you take a look at the curve, for example, that inversion, how much do you think we can actually invert until it actually is telling us something? I don't know. (laughs) You take a look at the three-month tenure, and it's not inverted. And uh, Fed people say, and Chris Waller was asked about this yesterday, he said, well, there is such a thing as a good inversion, where short-term rates are up because inflation is up and the Fed is raising rates, but long-term rates are down because the market has confidence the Fed will succeed in killing off inflation. So uh, you kind of have to figure out what the actual story is, and I think everybody the one thing everybody agree on is that they don't have a lot of confidence in the story that they're telling. There may be a oh, few great. people who, who, <laughs> who want to be known as the guy who called inflation or something like that. But it's really hard to say uh, with any clarity that this or that is going to happen because there's just so much weird about all this. There is a lot weird about this. I love um, that sentence. Talking of weird... How can you make, even in the United States, accurate economic projections if we don't know whether Europe is about to have a major economic crisis as a result of the Russians turning the gas off? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's another issue. Uh, you know, if, if the Russians turn the gas off to Germany, that's going to be really bad news for Europe, which means really bad news for the whole world. Then you've got COVID. Now we have a new variant that's uh, racing around the world. How bad oh, is I that going to be? Oh, I know. I know. We don't know. So, yeah, you would. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well then, but, but but to that point, what would be the the trickle down from like a major economic crisis over gas in Europe to the U.S.? Like, where's the feed? Well, it w- it would be in uh, trade, really, because the uh, Europeans would be buying a, mm. a lot less from us. But also, uh, natural gas, as as you well know, is a little different than oil because it's uh, not uh, totally fungible around the world, although with the U.S. sending so much of its nat gas to Europe now, <coughs> if they have to increase yep. that, then that's just going to push the price up here, too. So it does sure, increase inflation and maybe takes away a bit from consumer spending. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Busy week for you. Next week, going to be equally as busy with that CPI data Wednesday. Um, just to update everybody, Novak Djokovic, uh, Cam Norrie. Norrie won the first set, uh, 2-6, but Djokovic won the two after that. It's going with serve at the moment. This is the semi-finals of Wimbledon. Uh, the Brit, Cam Norrie, 2-1 behind on sets. I'll keep you updated on what's happening there. This is Bloomberg. This 
is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome to Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson uh, is over in London. Now, one of the top events that happens uh, this time of year is in Sun Valley, Idaho. First of all, it's beautiful there. The pictures are amazing. And this year, it's even a little bit more exciting because reportedly Elon Musk is there. Reportedly, he'll be saying some things tomorrow. And reportedly, his uh, deal with uh, Twitter is in serious jeopardy. The Washington Post uh, reporting on Thursday that Musk's team has concluded that Twitter cannot verify its figures on the spam accounts and the bots and have stopped engaging. So obviously anything that Elon Musk says that starts with the word twa is definitely something that will be front and center. Um, Ed Ludlow is here uh, as well from Sun Valley, Idaho. He's there. He's He's literally there. He's there. He's here. Well, he's there. Yeah, he's there. Hey, Ed, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. It's beautiful (laughs) here. The sun Um, is shining, but I'm tired. It's been hard. You you bet. Have you seen Elon Musk yet? So I haven't laid eyes on him, and we all waited for hours. But, you know, sources told me as soon as he arrived last night that he had arrived. You know, it's not unusual for high-profile attendees to be escorted through the back of the resort and not come through the front, as most people do. Um, And I've spoken to a few folks around today in the village on the mountain bike trail that, that laid eyes on him as well. So he's here, but we just haven't heard much from him. Just to be, have you been mountain biking? Yeah. Well, you got it. Well, I, you know, I work hard, guys. I take a downtime now and again. Now I'm now I'm just wondering why I'm just now I'm wondering why you're tired. Whether it's whether it's the chasing yeah. around after Musk or or whether or not it's the is the extreme mountain biking. Maybe he did it on a mountain bike. Well, I would hope it's that possible. It, you mean chasing after Musk? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I thought you said mountain biking not on a mountain biking is just not mountain biking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ed, Ed, talk to me. Talk, it's been a long week, you can tell, for us as well. Um, talk to us about what you're learning here, because these guys are pretty plugged in, and, and they're probably a useful economic litmus test. Yeah, I, I would say people are, are worried. You know, they, they're, they're cautious and they're worried about uh, the, the, the possibility of a recession. They're worried about inflation. And there are strong opinions on the Fed and how the Fed handles it. You know, Ken Langone told us in an interview, um, Home Depot, you know, billionaire, uh, that he wishes the Fed had raised rates a year ago. And in mm-hmm. a 1%, you know, by, by a percentage point, and got ahead of this. And that, frankly, it's too late. I think if there's a bright spot that, you know, Guy, you and I were talking about this, right, that this is TMT traditionally. Yeah. And in the media landscape, I think there is a lot of optimism that the consumer will hold up. They're not seeing any signs that the consumers run out of money uh, or that they'll stop spending. But certainly, you know, there isn't the same sort of joy that there was a year ago when we were here. Do you feel like the Musk Twitter thing is a litmus test for that? I can't remember who who I was talking to weeks ago that said, like, they're real indication for whether or not we're going to hit a recession is if Musk blows up the Twitter deal. Is there any feeling that that has more consequence than just Musk walking away? I think that what people are worried about with the Twitter deal is that Twitter's stock is just so is moving atypically compared to the rest of the sector. You know, it didn't get caught up in the sell-off of the first six months of this year, and and it's really bizarre to try and value Twitter, right? Like fifty-four dollars twenty cents a share, forty-four billion dollar value. Anyone would take that deal at any time in the last eighteen mm-hmm. months, and and if. 
what you know, the conversation I've had quite a few times is, is a hypothetical one. If Elon Musk was not buying Twitter, how much would it be worth now? And I think the, the consensus is that it'd be considerably less. So they are watching closely. I think they also um, they also are just watching for the theatre of it. You know, a lot of people have opinions here on what will happen, and most of them would say that he has to go through with it. And so I think one school of thought is that if he has to go through with it, we could see him come back with a lower price offer. Ludders, Ed Ludlow, thank you very much indeed. Just in case you're interested, Ed, uh, Djokovic is two sets to one up at Wimbledon oh, against against uh, against Cam Norrie. Uh, it's going with serve at the moment, but we're watching very carefully. Um, we'll keep you updated. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So European gas prices up again this week. That is the longest stretch of weekly gains that we have seen this year. Um, We have seen the potential for some detente, maybe starting to emerge. Uh, It looks like there is the possibility that... Um, after being asked by Germany, Canada may return a turbine for the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that has been stuck in Canada because of sanctions. Now, the Kremlin is saying that that equipment would help raise shipments into Europe. Remember, Nord Stream 1 is already uh, only running at 40% of capacity. But on Monday, it's going to go into full maintenance. The question is, will it get turned back on again? As we've been watching gas prices, we've also been watching electricity prices rocketing higher. Now, this is going to have an economic consequence for Europe. It's going to be extremely, extremely damaging. Rachel Morrison joins us now to talk about all of this. Rachel, we're going to full maintenance on Nord Stream 1 on Monday. What are you hearing about the prospects of it being turned back on 10 days later? It looks as though the market is pricing in a reduction in flow. So if um, everything, you know, goes ahead that that we won't get beyond where we are now. So it doesn't look as though anybody is expecting a full return um, of Nord Stream. However, it, everything, nobody expects Putin to give anything away until the last moment. So as you mentioned, the turbine, mm-hmm. if that can reach Russia and where it needs to be, then perhaps that does give a better chance for the maintenance work to be done. But there's no transparency over what's being done, what needs to be done and how long it will take. We only have, you know, statements that Mm -hmm. are sent by Russia. So it's very hard to tell what work needs to be done. And there's been some suspicion from particularly Germany that that Russia could have um, kept flows going and they've chosen not to. So can you talk about the, the game theory for a second? So let's pretend that they do get this turbine from Montreal, they get it before the 11th. Let's just pretend that that happens. What's the game theory there? Like, what could Putin or Russia come back and say, oh, there's something else that needs to be fixed, or, oh, this happened? Like, can they string it along in that respect? So Nord Stream needs six turbines for full capacity, and only two are working. So Gazprom said that they've shut the others saying they had orders from Russian regulators because those turbines also had to be serviced. They had technical deadlines. So it's very hard to tell what exactly is going on with the turbines, what 
what needs to be fixed, whether it needs they need parts, whether you know it's run of the mill maintenance and it, everything can then be restored. But I think politically, if Germany can get the turbine to Russia and Canada allows that to happen with sanctions, that's a signal of some softening which could potentially appease Putin in some way. Yeah, it makes you wonder what he would come mm. back for after that. Exactly. I, you've given me this, maybe I'll ask for something else. Rachel, what's in the price right now? We've seen uh, gas prices shooting higher. Is a total shutdown already priced? What could a total shutdown look like in terms of gas prices for Europe? It's likely to be a sort of slow process, you know, because Nord Stream, you know, if, if flows did did completely stop and just didn't come back at all, we would see those storage targets across Europe start to not look like completely impossible to meet. And most um, of the forecasts we're seeing show that then we would need to start using that gas. And by kind of January, February, when it's coldest, would be when there would be not enough gas. So if that were to happen, we would see rationing. So governments, um, countries trying to to tell citizens not to use gas to try to make the winter as you know as bearable as possible mm-hmm. but yeah really i think prices would increase from here there's a lot of risk already priced in but a total cutoff would would kind of mean all bets are off so uh goldman sachs says that that doesn't see a total shutdown that's prolonged um, in any of its scenarios, but that they do see it returning, but like a 40% uh, run rate. So somewhere in the middle. Is that the market's base case at this point? Yes, I think that view is based on the fact that selling this gas to Russia is a big revenue for, sorry, selling the gas to Europe is a big revenue, which Putin cannot find another market for. So in that, scenario he needs some gas to keep flowing to europe um so that kind of 40 percent is about where we are and probably gives him some room at the coldest point to you know further tighten the screws and and hold that over europe if he needs to um but but it's very very hard to tell exactly which way this is going to go uh I'd just like to point out Novak Djokovic has just knocked out Cam Norrie. I wonder what happened to you. I was just, I, I, sorry, just having to pay attention to something <laughs> else, just kind of to the side for a moment. Cam Norrie is out of Wimbledon. Novak Djokovic, 35 year old, uh, his seventh, uh, potentially his seventh Wimbledon win on the way. Uh, he is in the final. He looks pretty pumped about it. I have to say, I saw him on the, uh, the opening Monday on Centre Court. He didn't look very pumped then. He certainly seems to have woken up since. Um, Rachel, final quick question. Electricity prices up sharply. What's going on there? Yes, we've seen both French and German prices rise. The chart looks really quite dramatic for that. Um, and that's really based on two things. It's um, the political uh, vote in Germany that allows the government to kind of intervene in the market to get this reserve of coal plants going and also to limit um, yep. gas going to some gas-fired power stations. And in France, it's the mixture of the heat wave and the French nuclear fleet not performing as it should do. And it looks like they're going to need to get imports from everywhere else and drag up the price power in all the surrounding markets so that situation we need to keep a close eye on because that could really be quite a big swing factor for europe in terms of power supplies um 
even in the summer if it's very, very hot. Certainly hot at the moment. Rachel, thank you very much indeed, Rachel Morrison, on what is happening with the energy markets. Uh, that wraps things up for Alex and for me. Um, looks like we're heading for a Djokovic-Nadal final. Maybe Kyriakos can, can do it, but that would be my guess at this point. Uh, enjoy the weekend of sport. Enjoy the weekend of weather. From Alex and from me, this is Bloomberg. <laughs> 